Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to The Schmooze. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Irina Klepfisch. Poet Irina was born in the Warsaw Ghetto in 1941. She survived the war hiding in an orphanage and later in the Polish countryside with her mother. After the war, they lived in Lodz and Sweden before settling in New York in 1949. Irina's poetry broke new ground in its brazen lesbian voice, while also finding new ways to poetically investigate the trauma of the Holocaust. She played a key role in the emergent Jewish lesbian movement starting in the 1970s and has been dedicated to the recovery and transmission of women's writing in Yiddish as an active scholar, translator, and teacher. Her poetry engages the Yiddish language, writing bilingually to create a Jewish feminist's poetics for the past and present. Irina joins me today to speak about her recently published collection, Her Birth and Later Years, New and Collected Poems, 1971 to 2021, published by Wesleyan Poetry Series. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, I've so been looking forward to this conversation. Um, and uh, before we get started, just uh, thank you. It's an incredible collection, one that I will um, keep pouring over um, and over and over. So honestly, my short introduction doesn't really provide a full picture of your work. You've been described as a pioneer of the recovery of Jewish and Yiddish women's writing, to which you've dedicated translations, research, teaching, and activism. Can you speak a little bit about that work? It's a lot of ground to cover, but just maybe what led you in those directions? Well, I, I grew up with a very strong Yiddishist background, even though I always have to remind people Yiddish was not my mama and Polish was. I spoke Polish with my mother at home. I mean, I started obviously speaking Polish during the war, and my mother continued speaking Polish to me. But I grew up in, um, when we came to the States, of course, I went to public school, but my mother sent me to a Yiddishula, and I lived in a neighborhood that was um, populated by a lot of survivors, and a lot of them Bundists and Yiddishists. And my neighborhood, for example, it was not uncommon to bump into Chaim Grada. Um, I mean, it was that kind of, it was sort of a shtetl <laughs> in a way, but a secular sort of Bundesstetl. Um, and I always valued that background, but I think um, I was very kind of conscious of sort of upward mobility. I went on to get a PhD. I, I studied even with Max Weinreich in, um, in City College. We created a course a bunch of us, and he taught us. And then I studied with him individually to get honors. I remember I studied Levick, the Golem. Um, I mean, it was just uh, it was a wonderful experience. But I have to say, I was 21, and I did not appreciate the honor. I mean, I just didn't really totally understand who he was. Or, you know, it's only looking back now that I sort of know what that was, how lucky I was. Um, and I went on to graduate school. You know, I majored in Victorian literature. I got my PhD on about George Eliot. Um, and it wasn't really until I came out. And when I came out, partly because of my background and a little bit because of some of the poetry I had written, not all of it, because I was writing a lot in the first my first book, Periods of Stress. I was writing a lot about coming out, but I included Holocaust poems in that book. People started sort of and I was very vocal about being a secular Jew because I was raised, Weltlichkeit was everything, you know. Um, 
so and, and there were a lot of people i met a lot of red diaper babies you know in the left sort of i was in the left part of the lesbian feminist movement and so people started looking at me as sort of this authentic possibly jew i mean i was from europe i knew yiddish i was a socialist i was blah blah, blah. um but what came with that was tell me about yiddish women writers tell me about the yiddish intellectuals in eastern europe I knew zero, zero. I mean, I had all this education. I even did some postdoc in Yiddish. And I knew, I really, aside, I think, from Kadya Molodovska, maybe I could have named, maybe I could have named Rachel Korn. I don't really know. Um, I just knew nothing. And so they were looking to me to give to them. And so I had to, you know, basically, I had to educate myself. So I started asking questions and looking. And, um, and also, I mean, it wasn't a very, you know, people think it's very special. Within the women's movement, it wasn't special. Every every person in, of every ethnicity was looking at their background and saying, where are the women? Where were the women in my community? Why isn't, don't I know anything historical figures? So I was doing what everybody else was really doing, except I was doing it around Yiddish. And for Jewish women, I think that was really, it was a big deal because as it is for every community when they start discovering their foremothers. So that's how, and also I, I always credit Gloria Anzaldúa because Gloria Anzaldúa, I don't know how, if you know her, she, she's a Chicano, Chicana um, lesbian that I met in the very early 80s. We were teaching in a women's like retreat. It was a three-week writing, creative writing workshop at Santa Cruz, in uh, UC Santa Cruz. And we didn't know each other. We knew each, each other's work a little bit from the movement, but we had never met. And we were sweet mates. So here, here I am, this immigrant Jew from the Bronx, this lesbian. And here she is, a Chicana from Texas with a heavy Spanish accent, even though she was born here. And we started exchanging. And she wrote a lot in, you know, using a lot of Spanish um in borderlands which i don't read and we used to have arguments about why she didn't translate and so on but she sort of made me self-conscious and not in a deliberate or negative way but i suddenly i thought what happened to yiddish in my life <laughs> you know this reminds me henry saposnik who's a musician he was the head of class camp always told this story that he went down south and he was, I don't know, he was looking at bluegrass music and somebody said to him, don't your people have their own music? You know, it sort of was like that. I suddenly started thinking, well, where were the women? I mean, who are the women? <laughs> so I, started, I was pushed sort of from different directions, including internally. I wanted to, um, to unearth and to bring to the forefront, you know, I wrote that in the 90s. I wrote that long article that was in Bridges about four Yiddishists who were totally on opposite ends. I mean, sheer, um, there was the Orthodox woman, um, Sora Schneerer, who founded the Besiankov movement, Mina Medem, Dingina Medem, who was a communist, Hello, Anna Hello Rosenthal, who was a Bundist, and Kadya Molodovsky, who was who knows where. Um, but um, they were all passionate Yiddishists. And so on all these spectrums, there were these women that nobody ever talked about, you know? So that's what really pushed me. And I think also Gloria as a model um, pushed me to um, 
to sort of try to think about including Yiddish in some way in some of my poetry. I don't didn't do it in everything because I didn't think it was appropriate, but I got pushed that way. And it was um, it was an interesting process. Um, I also credit, I have to say, it was a, that whole period in the early late 70s and early 80s was very tumultuous for me. In 1983, I went to um, I went back to Poland for the first time with my mother. It was her only trip back. It was the 40th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And one of the um, important moments for me, which is really sort of almost sounds silly, was for very variety of reasons, we went to see the Lodge Cemetery, not because we knew anybody there, but she wanted to talk to somebody. And it was the time of Sally Darnosh and people were suspicious of being conversations being bugged. And that was a good place to go where you didn't think you'd be bugged. And um, so they went off to talk and I wandered around. This is an enormous Lodge Cemetery, which wasn't destroyed like there was such a mess that the Warsaw one was. And I was just stunned because partly because it was like really being able to see what was destroyed in a way that I had never seen it before, because it was very, um, and also I have to say growing up where I grew up, it was like, it felt like nothing had been destroyed, even though these people were survivors, there was this incredible life that was very, so all those things pushed together, pushed me back. I mean, I never really had been away from it, but it had never been in the forefront. It was sort of my background and I was root, I was always rooted in the Bund. You know, I was that my socialist values always came from, the, I mean, that never wavered, but it was, you know, I don't know, it wasn't anchored in anything. Let me put it that way. Um, so that's sort of a complicated story. No, I think it's, um... It's such an interesting story because you were at a point in time when I think all of this allowed for that kind of exploration, um, you know, in, in terms of yeah, you know, speaking personally, I was art major, but I didn't know of Jewish women artists who were on the sidelines, um, the Cedar Tavern whole scene. And yeah, all of the women who yeah were not mentioned in that whole history. So I think it, it's so interesting that you were able to find that kind of um, direction. So you started. Yeah, I, feel, by the way, yeah. I just want to say, I feel very, very lucky that I came out at that moment. And I also came out in New York City, not isolated. So, I mean, there were a lot of things that helped me. And I, I don't know if you read the acknowledgments, but I really feel totally indebted. I feel like I would have gotten probably, I don't know where I would have gotten if it, that hadn't happened, if that lesbian movement and feminist movement of bookstores, presses, newspapers, coffee houses. I mean, that was all to our, which is a very different experience than what I'm having with Wesleyan. I mean, it's just like a totally, totally different experience. Not yeah, there, but, no. but different. <laughs> Understood. I mean, it, it was, um, there was a lot, a lot stewing at that point and a lot of possibility for following in interesting directions. And you pulled together a lot of different aspects of that exploration, if I may. I'm not sure I phrase that very well, but I also think it was part and parcel of the times. Um, and I would love to know if you could speak a little bit about what you were the 
you wrote the feminist introduction to the groundbreaking found treasures stories by Yiddish women writers. You co-organized and co-edited the proceedings of the National Conference to Freud, Women and Yiddish Tributes to the Past Directions for the Future. Uh, that was around 1995. Your work um, has helped shape a queer Yiddish culture and political movement, um, which scholar Jeffrey Chandler has called queer Yiddishkeit. Can you speak a little bit about maybe how intentionally or perhaps organically all of this happened? Well, it didn't, for me, it certainly didn't happen. I mean, I was very conscious of my own work and what I wanted. I mean, I wasn't conscious of um, starting a movement or anything like that, you know, and um, I just, I mean, I just felt I, I, there were certain things I needed to do and did at the same time that I was doing lots of other things as well. I mean, I, I didn't, um, so for example, I mean, I spent more, uh, approximately two years as director of New Jewish Agenda. And um, I, I mean, <laughs> that was about the Middle East and it was about, you know, it was just, it's, it was, I, I've led sort of very different lives or maybe parallel lives. Um, and um, And I'm not sure, that to other people, it seems that coherent or organic. I mean, to me, it's all sort of integrated. And I don't, I sort of can't tell a Jewish poem from a lesbian poem, but, you know, um, I don't know the difference kind of. Um, but um, so no, none of it. I mean, I just kind of, flew. I mean, certainly like even when we started Conditions, which Conditions became a very influential magazine. I worked with it for the first six years. We founded it and we did, it was a feminist magazine we call it, we said a women's magazine with an um, emphasis on writing by lesbians because we wanted to include working class and women of color who were not lesbians and who didn't have opportunities. So it was open to in a certain way, even though we were all dykes. I mean, the four of us were original, the original. But I mean, who knew that it was going to be an influential magazine? I mean, you know, we published, I don't know. 800 copies originally and it was never huge but it was it did attract an enormous amount of attention and who knew that that was you know you didn't know you just you just did stuff that's why you should never I mean I sometimes sometimes I you know when I was teaching I would tell students would say I want to do this and this but there's only three of us that want to do it and I'd say just do it <laughs> Do it. Don't think about it. In fact, you know, my theory is that if you have 50 people, you're less likely to get off the ground than if you have three, <laughs> because it just, you know, it's not easy to work together. Right. And and I think that that was one of the things that was so great about how that period in time really did incubate. It allowed for possibilities and nobody really thought in this very vertical way of my career, or my direction. It just gave, um, yeah, opportunity for all sorts of things. So let's now talk about <laughs> um, birth and later years, new and collected poems, 1971 to 2021. It's an amazing collection, as I said at the start, uh, and we'll explore a little bit more about that. But curious again, what set you in the direction of putting this, if I may, retrospective collection together? Well, wasn't me. <laughs> it was Julie Anser, who's the editor of current editor of Sinister Wisdom, which is a lesbian 
cultural, political, literary magazine. And um, I had originally had a smaller manuscript of more recent poems, which appear in, in this collection. And she had told me to send it to Wesleyan. And Wesleyan really liked it, but they said it was too short. So Julie said, the other stuff is out of print, put it all together. So I did, I, I listened to what she said. <laughs> <laughs> and I sent it to Wesleyan and they really liked it um, and took it. So it was, it was, I have to say, it was a remarkable to me. My whole history is really with feminists and lesbian. Um, I wouldn't say all feminine, women's and lesbian presses. My books have all, that's in England here. I mean, I just never thought I'd be published by a university press. It was like the furthest thing from my mind. I mean, I just never even occurred to me. Um, so, and I have to say, I've been kind of snotty sometimes about university press poetry. <laughs> so I have to, I have to totally reevaluate my, I'm a, I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> what can you do? Um, so, so it, I'm, moved, it, it moved forward on a new charted path. Think of it that way. Yeah, you, it was a trajectory. I never, yeah, anticipated. Yeah. I, mean, I certainly didn't anticipate this. I mean, listen, when I first published my first book, periods of stress. It was really self-published. The four of us got together, made up a press, and each of us paid for our own book, and we called it a press. So that that book cost $1.50. And when I decided to reprint it, I agonized for five months whether I could raise it by 50 cents to $2. So this is where I come from. So I don't, I, I never imagined Wesleyan. <laughs> Well, we're we're glad that that, that it <laughs> happened. Um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, if I may ask, um, about my reading of the work. I mean, for, the poems for me provide a a window into kind of both your life experiences, and at the same time, they convey for me through very powerful and a you know illustrative reading uh, writings, right? Um, a real understanding of a lived experience in history in a way that I've never been able to find my way into in that regard. Well, I think I've always, I've been very, very, I mean, I was, it was sort of, it's very hard to explain, but I've always been aware, maybe partly because maybe of my father's reputation. I mean, he was, he was very much um, honored by my community for his part in the uprising. Um, you know, his photograph is on the stage, usually on commemorations. I mean, I was always very aware sort of of history and and I was very conscious that I had experienced something that I didn't remember at all. I have no memory of the war, but that I knew affected me in a very, very deep way with my, you know, in terms of who I was, how I related to people, it saturated my life. So that I was always, I mean, interestingly enough, when I was in graduate school, when I was not dealing with my sort of these issues, my dissertation, oddly enough, was on George Eliot. And it was about George, it's about, how, how did I phrase it? The relationship of the individual to historical events. That was my dissertation in George Eliot's fiction. I mean, it was like, it's when I'm looking back on it, of course, it's ridiculous. <laughs> so, um, and I was always very, very conscious that I came out of that and that I was one of these sort of pieces that survived. Um, and that that 
marked me in a certain way and that I um that gave me a kind of sensitivity or sensibility or something about being his feeling history in the moment now I didn't feel I mean when we did all these other things relating to your previous question we weren't thinking we were thinking we were breaking ground but we didn't weren't thinking that much about the future I mean it was all about kind of now um it was a very long now but it wasn't it wasn't you know but but at the same time I did I did feel like I, it took me I don't know whether I I didn't feel American for a long time I mean I felt like a even though it was interesting when Gloria and I used to do readings together because she had the accent, they assumed she was the immigrant and I was the American born because I talked like I came from the Bronx, which I did. <laughs> um, so I, but I internally, I always, I always felt very kind of like an outsider. Um, I never felt quite enough of something. Like even in my lesbianism, I was very tied to my Jewishness. And I, it wasn't like I was, you know, a lot of lesbians came out and they left everything behind. I didn't really want to leave it. I mean, I wasn't necessarily engaged, but I didn't want to forget it. And I didn't want to distance myself from it. And I was a very proud Jew. I was always a very proud Jew. Um, and so it was kind of, I don't know. <laughs> I was, I didn't feel like I... Um, I didn't feel like I flowed very well. Let me put it that way. I felt I was rubbing up against history all the time, kind of. But all that you note, that complexity is so much a part of my, my I, know, I don't know what it's like for everybody else, but my reading of your poetry. I mean, it's so interesting. You don't deny aspects of your life, but you explore aspects of your life and you see them as all sort of, yeah part of that whole fabric um and and just a, it's really stunningly beautiful and very um no thank you very 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 i don't want to use the word raw but anyway um it's just yeah thank you which leads me into asking would there be a possibility of your reading a poem well, as I, I thought I'd read, since this is for the National Yiddish Book Center, I thought I'd read my very first bilingual poem, which I wrote um, after these discussions with Gloria that we were having in California. I said, okay, I'm going to write, a, I'm going to use Yiddish in my poetry. I've never done it before. I had already two books out at that point. I never really, I used the word bashir, but that, that's not really using Yiddish. It's just, I didn't know the equivalent of English. So I wrote this poem called Et Lechaverta of Mamaloshin, which refers to lesbianism in it. And um, the first, and you know, I always say you, it's easy to be brave on paper. It's not so easy to be brave in person. And the first time I had to read the poem was, I didn't have to, I chose to read the poem. Out of, I was invited, I don't remember what the event was, but I was invited to the National Yiddish Book Center uh, Aaron Lansky invited me, and um, and I um, I came, and I was determined to read the poem. And but at the same time, I had never. It sort of I was very self conscious. You know, you have to remember. I mean, I, the movement was very young. There was enormous amount of homophobia that we had to deal with. I mean, it was in the Jewish community everywhere. 
And the Jewish community was not, you know, immune to it. And I had experienced a lot of it. And so I was literally trembling before reading this poem, which everybody now loves, but at the time, and I remember thinking to myself, Irina, did you have to say Liz Bianca like five times? Couldn't you have just said it once in the poem? How many times do you have to say it? <laughs> and it was, it's very hard to describe people, you know, we're such a different place. I mean, to some degree, I mean, we're having a backlash, obviously, but with gay marriage and all of this stuff and gay families, it's very hard to imagine what those early years were like in terms of just being out. And I was out in the Jewish community and some of it did, some people didn't like it. I mean, it wasn't a pleasant kind of thing. So anyway, so I sort of, feel, I always remember that reading to this audience. And of course, nobody cared in that particular audience. I mean, I read it and people really liked it. And um, I think people were more shocked by the word kurve, whore. Um, which means whore, that, that I would use such a word. <laughs> so anyway, so that's the poem. So since this is national, I mean, it's, it's the book center. Um, so I'll read that. Um, a few words in the mother tongue. For example, the whore, a woman who acknowledges her passions. Diidina, the Jewess, the Jewish woman, ignorant, overbearing. Let's face it, every woman is one. Dienta, the gossip, the busybody who knows what's what and is never caught off guard. Dilisbianca, the one with a roommate, though we never use the word. Dos Weibel, the wife or the little woman. In Dehain, at home, where she does everything to keep Yiddishkeit alive, Yiddishkeit, a way of being Jewish, always arguable. In Malk, where she buys die Kartoffel und Challah, yes, potatoes and Challah, die Kartoffel, the material counterpart of Yiddishkeit. Mitzibolus with onions that bring Trem to the Eugen tears to her eyes when she sees how little it all is. Weiniger und weiniger, less and less. Dichala, braided via Hofadachasana, like her hair before the wedding when she was Azashen Mabel, such a pretty girl. Die lange schwarze Haar, the long black hair, die lange schwarze Haar. A woman dreams her place in this world and she is afraid, so afraid of the words Kurva, Yidna, Yenta, Lesbianka, Weibel. She dreams and she is afraid a Kurve Holland, a Yidina Holland, a Yenta Holland, a Lesbianke Holland, a Weibel Holland, die Kartoffel, die Halle, Jiddischkeit, sie Holland, die Hall, die lange schwarze Hall, sie Holland, sie Holland, sie Holland.
Thank you. Um, <laughs> thank you, Irina, for joining me today for your groundbreaking work, for your poetry, your inspiring and urging on of work in the field of women in Yiddish and all else. Again, for our listeners, I urge you to head to shop.yiddishbookcenter.org or your other favorite bookstore and get Her Birth and Later Years, New and Collected Poems, 1971 to 2021. Thanks again, and we look forward to hopefully seeing you at the center soon. Keep writing. Thank you. I will. You have been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To learn more about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Elizabeth Carteropoli. Until next time, be well and be healthy.